When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Thursday morning, uh, the 20th of April. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. This week, the government published the so-called Stability Programme Update, forecasting Ireland's economic position for this year and beyond. The Irish economy is stable, very stable in fact. There is only one question for the government now. What are we going to do with all of this money? Loads of money. A whopping 26 6 billion euro over the next two years. What this means is that after the government collects all of the money it takes in this year and then spends all of the money it needs for this year, it will have about 10 billion euro left over. Next year, it's even better news. The surplus is expected to be 16.2 2 billion euro. It really is quite extraordinary. Let's speak to Father Sean Healy, Director of Social Justice Ireland. And good morning to you, Sean, and thank you indeed for joining us. We're talking about a lot of lolly. What would you do with it? Very simple. I would invest all of it in either uh, reducing some of the debt or putting it into a fund for the future. But most of it I would spend on dealing with our infrastructure challenges, particularly social housing. Um, I think the the critical, the way I would look at it is that uh, one-off, uh, windfall revenue, which that is, is like it's tax money, but we are not going to keep getting this at all. So it's a one-off kind of gain that we have. That one-off gain should be invested in addressing the uh, one-off, in, uh, putting it into a one-off investment. And I'm talking about housing, particularly social housing in this context. We have an extraordinary problem with uh, social housing. It's, up, it's messing up all sorts of people's lives because we know we're very familiar with evictions and homelessness and mm. people uh, unable to, to, to rent, that I might say, p- uh, purchase houses at this point. I saw in your statement that you believe that 133,000 people in this country are in need of social housing. It is, it is worse than that. It's 133,000 households 
because the, some of those households would be more than one person. In fact, there'd be several pers- people. Um, so, in, in actual fact, uh, 133,000 households. We uh, and, and that's the, we need an additional 133,000 houses, social houses. We're talking about here. Now, the interesting thing, in the rest of Europe, the average uh, percentage of the housing stock in a country uh, that is social housing is about 20 percent, one in five. Mm. In Ireland, it's less than one in ten. Okay, that's a, a problem. It's resulted in, in this crisis, or certainly con- certainly contributed to it. Uh, but forgive me for saying it, uh, it's a, a non-runner. Uh, I mean, we're talking about twenty-six billion. You're saying spend some of that at least on social housing. Uh, but over the last three years, the government had one billion euro that it wasn't able to spend on social housing. And I believe that that's caused partly because they haven't taken the problem seriously enough. What we need is a a, a sort of like a wartime kind of approach to this. If the government... it has a problem and it sees the problem as large enough to be dealt with it can take a kind of an emergency approach to dealing with it and it can deal with it very effectively but as everybody has been saying that just, 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 just yeah, yeah, yeah. as it did with COVID mm. look at the changes that they brought in in a matter of weeks oh I know a government can, we, we learned that a government can do anything that it wants Precisely. to do in an emergency situation uh, we wouldn't have been terribly surprised if we'd seen tanks on the streets at one stage um, <laughs> exactly yeah but we wouldn't have never have contemplated that uh, a few years back. Uh, but the government says, I mean, we've been hearing about this billion euro all week uh, and uh, there's been a lot of criticism and uh, the government has faced that down saying, look, we're doing all that we can. And not only that, we're doing more than has ever been done before. The issue about whether they've done more than ever before, we could have a discussion about that because you can t- go back to times when Ireland was a poor, a much poorer country uh, and we were building far more houses than we're actually building today. Uh, the social houses I'm talking about here. The, the bottom line in this, it is not true for government to say that they've done everything that they can. Uh, and the idea that because we're doing more than we did in the last 10, any year in the last 10 years, that's only hiding behind uh, numbers. The reality is we have a much bigger problem now than we had uh, in the, over the years. The, pro- the problem has been growing. Our failure to deal with the problem has made it worse. Uh, and now, uh, okay, government is beginning to do more than it did before. What it's doing is not nearly enough. We should be building about what we would advocate in, in Social Justice Ireland. To get to that target that I'm talking about, okay, 20%, we would need to build the what we would suggest is that government would build 14,500 social and affordable, really affordable houses uh, every year between now and 2020. And what that would do is it would bring the total up to 15% of the total stock. We still have a, pr- a serious piece to go mm-hmm. in the 2030s. But if we built, uh, if we had 14,500 new social and affordable houses out there uh, every year for the next seven, eight years, we would then have a situation in which large numbers of people who are currently renting but being supported by the taxpayer to do that it's through HAP and so on that mm. they would move into these social housing units and that those all those 14 and a half or a big proportion of those 14 and a half thousand houses that would be freed up would actually be available for the rental market and the result would be that there would be a quite serious I, I would think drop in the actual uh, rent cost the what, real cost what, what about all of the obstacles 
struggles, though, because uh, the government is throwing everything it has at it and a billion euro bounces back uh, as such. You can't get uh, construction workers. Uh, there's all sorts of red tape. You need planning permission. Uh, and there's so many objections uh, that uh, come uh, in front of, of any planning application. Uh, there's all sorts of red tape bureaucracy. There's the standards in housing. We don't want to drop down. There's construction inflation, apparently. Uh, and that's one of the reasons the government isn't spending money hoping prices will come down. Uh, should we just take all of this money and spend it foolishly? Absolutely not. Of course not. Uh, and, but just think back. Remember we were talking about uh, what the government did during COVID. It, it way back in the Celtic Tiger uh, time, when there was a real problem with getting workers to come into Ireland, what did Ireland do? It went out across the world and recruited workers. Outside the it went to the accession states in Eastern Europe, but it also went far beyond that to, to South Africa and Asia and whatever to recruit the specialists that we required, and we recruited thousands of workers. And where would they live? But we hold that now a second. Okay. The first thing is that the government has not done anything remotely close to that to try to bring workers in who could build these. Now, the obvious problem we have is the very one you're highlighting, because the people that are going to build those houses need somewhere to live. Yeah. And I think, I think, like in the same way that um, that we have to face up to responsibilities on issues around uh, asylum seekers from Ukraine and re- refugees and so on, um, I think what we have to be able to do is to to, to deal with these kinds of things in an emergency situation and then deal with the, the emergency immediately, deal get, provide the accommodation that is required uh, for those kinds of workers, which can be uh, temporary in many ways uh, because they, they may well move on. Mm. But the bottom line in this is that we have to get building and using the money that is now there, sitting there, or will be sitting there at the end of this year and the end of next year, that we have to move to invest that money wisely, not that foolishly, wisely, and the obvious place to do it that would have the biggest impact would be on the issue of housing, social housing in particular. Mm-hmm. You build those and stop the idea that in some way or other it'll all be done by the private sector. Invest the money in in the the the, the, the building of social housing, which is not going to be built by the by the by the private sector, and so do that and then what we have is a, a sort of a cascading effect uh, in Irish society that would have huge positive economic impacts because people would have somewhere to, to live and the cost of accommodation wouldn't be as high as it is uh, and wouldn't take as much of the income that people get but not alone that it would also have a huge societal positive impact because we'd be away from all this whole whole thing of, of that that we're currently doing or facing of uh, people being evicted and uh, things of that nature. With so, with so much money at its disposal uh, with an election budget ahead, quite possibly an election budget ahead, uh, would you be concerned about what the government might do with it? I would, of course, yeah. Uh, like the, 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 I'd be very concerned that, uh, that it, it, sort of winning votes in an election... Uh, 
and in a short-term kind of way uh, or a short-sighted way might become the focus. But the, the bottom line in that is that if you ask most people in Ireland today uh, what they would like to see addressed uh, in the run-up to an election, housing is the obvious one. But there's also uh, issues around this, the sheer scale of the, the, the income problem that people have. So there's an issue around poverty uh, that, that is very, very substantial. And I think that, that would sort of, if you like, make be, be be able to uh, have have an impact big time uh, on the society as well. And thirdly, there's an issue around taxation itself. Like we we have the, the government hasn't done yet uh, the, the sort of reform of the tax system that's required, uh, and they have a taxation commission report now, and there's a lot of good ideas in there to to actually go and follow. But the the bottom line in the in the thing is we need to have a, a, a sort of investment uh, focus. In, on the housing and uh, dealing also uh, with with the poverty issue, uh, and then dealing with the taxation, the structure of taxation, and ensuring that we have a, a, a tax system that is fit for purpose at this stage in the 21st century. Because at the moment we we have a problem with it. We're not collecting. Uh, and over the the overall tax take, and I'm not talking about income tax here now. Uh, the the overall tax take needs to go up by about three percentage points. Now Ireland can well afford to do that, but that's what's required to give us the the base uh, when all of this these surpluses are finished. That we would have enough of a base of taxation to ensure that we can provide the services and the infrastructure and so on. That are required uh, for everybody in Irish society to live life with dignity. And there's, there's a combination of three big areas, if you like, uh, that government could go at with the money that they have here. The, 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 the housing issue, the taxation issue, and the poverty issue. Okay. Uh, just to put it into perspective, uh, if we can conclude on this, with a government wondering or having to decide, let's say. I'm sure they have plenty of ideas uh, and they're uh, not a, at a loss on this. But with uh, such an a, a envious decision to have to make, uh, what will we do with 26 billion euros spare over the next two years? Uh, is this a, a country where any child should go to bed hungry or pensioners should be scraping pennies together or people sleeping on the streets or uh, without a place uh, that they can call their home or waiting uh, on a hospital trolley to get a, a bed in a hospital or some of these other issues mm-hmm. that we face all of the time. A simple answer to your question under no circumstance would that be the case. There should be no spe- no child going to bed hungry. There should be no pensioners scraping pennies together trying to survive. That is a ridiculous situation where we are now. Uh, you and I had lots this is going back to the crash way back when, mm. uh, you know, 10 or 12 years ago now, and we had a situation in which uh, we had all sorts of dire uh, pressures put on us uh, by the European banking system and the European Commission and the IMF and so on. And remember at the time we had a debt GDP ratio of about like, our, our debt was about 120-130% of our uh, gross domestic product, of the whole value of our goods and services. Now, all of that uh, was the focus and we had to bring down that debt. That was the whole point. We are now this year according to the, st- the stability updates that we were talking about, the, 
the debt GDP ratio is down under 79%, and next year is going to be down at 75, and in two or three years' time it's going to be at 65. Now the interesting 65%. Now the interesting thing is that the European recommendation, way back, this is at 2008-9-10, was that it should be down to 60%. So the point at issue is the core issue at the uh, at the European level about the stability and growth pact, which put it together first, uh, and the Department of Finance has been responding to it ever since, uh, is to to reduce the debt-GDP ratio. We now have that completely under control and in very good shape. The reality then is there should be no excuse to government. I don't think there was ever an excuse that I would accept to not to prioritize uh, the situation to ensure that there was no child going to bed hungry, that there was no pensioner stuck, that that people didn't have the basics to live life with dignity. That's not good enough. In a, in, that's not good enough in a country with far less resources than we have. We have the resources way beyond mm-hmm. what's required to ensure that every man, woman and child is sufficient to live life with dignity. Mm-hmm. We need just the political will to deliver it and at this moment we don't have that political will in place that's the problem okay we'll leave it on that now thank you sean as always for joining us this morning that's father sean healy director of social justice ireland Michael Reed on LMFM. The Central Statistics Office has published uh, the results uh, from its sexual violence survey. This is a survey that was carried out last year on behalf of uh, the government with the objective of providing high quality national prevalence data on sexual violence and to act as a, a new baseline for the levels of sexual violence in this country. Sexual violence is defined in the survey as a range of non-consensual experiences from non-contact experiences to non-consensual sexual intercourse. Four in ten adults experience sexual violence over their lifetime. Results from the CSO Sexual Violence Survey 2022 show. Clear differences by sex and age were evident as over half or 52% of women experience sexual violence in their lifetime compared with 28% of men. In terms of age, around 65% of women aged 18 to 24 experience sexual violence in their lifetime, compared with 17% for men aged 65 and over. And there's a lot in the survey, a lot of differences too between the experiences lived by women and those of men. Six times more women experience non-consensual sexual intercourse as an adult than men, according to the CSO's Sexual Violence Survey 2022. It found that 18% of women experienced non-consensual sexual intercourse compared with 3% of men. The data also shows that child sexual violence was experienced by men and women across all age groups, but young women, aged 18 to 24, reported the highest levels. For example, unwanted sexual intercourse as a child was reported by 10% of women aged 18 to 24, compared with 2% of men in this age group. Now, those stats from Helen McGrath, statistician with uh, the Social Analysis Division of uh, the CSO. Let's speak to Nolene Blackwell, who's the Chief Executive of the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. A very good morning to you, Nolene, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme. You've been waiting 20 years for this survey. Yeah, we have. Yeah, so it's great. And this is the first time the government has ever done it or a government agency has ever done it, Michael. The Savvy Survey, on which so much depended and which was published in 2002, was actually commissioned by Dublin Rape Crisis Centre and carried out by uh, researchers from the Royal College of Surgeons, headed up by Professor Hannah McGee. So, so 
so that that has been kind of our baseline all along the way um, and it's a few years ago now that the state recognised that they didn't have their own information they did not have their official information on what sexual prevalence, sexual um, violence prevalence was in Ireland and so they've spent about the past three or four years actually working on this and I think they have come up with a very um, very well thought out product which gives us a lot of of, I suppose, sobering information around the continued high level of the prevalence of sexual violence in Ireland. But it does give us figures that have been done as objectively as is ever possible. And I mean, Mm. paying great credit to the CSO for the way that they went about it, but also to the people, some many of whom, hundreds of whom, revealed for the first time uh, that they had been victims of sexual violence in the course of this study. So, Mm. you know, it's like great credit to them. And I think thanks is due to all of those who took part because now we have a a more up-to-date, better understanding. And the state has now got a methodology that it says it will use again to repeat such a survey in 10 years' time, which in itself is a big advance. It really is sobering, isn't it? I mean, it's not just a high level of prevalence uh, of sexual violence. It's not just that it's come places it appears to be endemic yeah and and again like the, the government know this uh, we they put it into the program for government that uh, that sexual and domestic and gender-based violence generally was an epidemic in our society that needed to be dealt with in the way and the epidemic should be um so they it's 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 here and i suppose some of the things you know i've probably said to you before that it's kind of a secret form of violence but in fact the more I think about it the more I think it's not that it's secret but that people weren't able to speak about it because they were being dismissed as it being trivial or it being disruptive or um, or that it was going to annoy somebody um, particularly when one of the findings is something that we know from all the other surveys and work we do ourselves is that the vast majority of people who are the subjects of sexual violence who experience it know the person who carries it out mm. and it can be a family member it can be someone they work with it can be somebody in their friend group it can be a partner you know it's it's like it's just one of those things that we know is there and that I think really we have all helped to trivialise to ask people to move on to not realise the harm that it does and and this survey specifically says that sexual violence includes um, behaviour which has a marked or a powerful um, negative impact on somebody Mm. Well, that's a, a lot of somebodies, isn't it? Uh, I mean, uh, I always had it, uh, the figure in my head of, of one in four, but now it's one in two women, more than yeah. that, in fact, 52% of women. Yeah, yeah. I actually, I uh, even though I, I go over these statistics maybe once a week uh, in the day job, um, I, I, I myself got a bit of a land when I saw that 52% and you realised one in every two of the women surveyed had had experience of uh, sexual violence that they were prepared to disclose. And I suspect that there will be other people who still aren't ready to disclose anything in that area. But that's one in two. One in four men, these were all adults. 
um, who were asked about it. And that's an awful lot of people who had that, who either had a sexual encounter uh, which was done by force or coercion of some sort or which was so... um, Awful in their in their in their system in in their bodies and in their emotions and in their psyches uh, that it had this impact on them this strong and powerful impact. We uh, we we definitely have to take the, the, there's no way out of it now. We have to reduce that. We have to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, it's a big job of work if it's going to be successful uh, because, uh, as I say, it's so commonplace, endemic as uh, the case may be. Uh, And it it appears uh, that uh, there's ongoing issues with children being uh, abused. Uh, That's something that is generally reported as adults. But a a lot of young people under the age of 25 are also uh, reporting uh, sexual violence against them. That's right. Uh, that's right. So they broke up the age categories along along the way, and it is uh, it is interesting even just looking at the graphs, all of which are publicly available on the CSO website uh, right now. If anybody wants to look at it, and there will be more information coming out from the CSO over months. But it is interesting that when you look at the experience of sexual violence in their lifetime, uh, the, the under twenty four, the eighteen to twenty four year olds are the ones both women and men that show the highest level and as just the stats you called out there at the start one of them was two out of every three young women aged between 18 and 24 said they had already experienced sexual violence Uh, four in ten young men said the same thing but like over 65% of women so two in every three had already experienced sexual violence Um, now that could be a a variety of factors I undoubtedly uh, there is uh, there are factors that are influencing that such as Mm -hmm. um, uh, pornography uh, probably the fact that that uh, yeah so so that's probably one of them it could well be as well that uh, that there is more uh, sexual violence taking place in in young people's groups but it could also be that there's a greater recognition amongst young people of what sexual violence is and I mean if you look even at those who are over 65, so the, an older generation by far, nearly two generations on from that. One in three of women in that case experienced sexual violence. But there were, there were a whole lot of things which somebody might absolutely not recognise as sexual violence. Mm. Because if you were over 65 and if you were in a, a marriage or a long-term relationship since you were in your 20s, then it was the case in Ireland that a man literally was not, could not be convicted of raping his wife. So there was a level at which in times in past times, uh, there was more of an acceptance mm. by women that sexual violence could happen to them and that there was nothing they could do about it and even more that they had a duty to accept non-consensual sexual activity. And it's also how you so, perceive what is sexual violence. It, it. It's defined in the survey as something that has a powerful effect on a person uh, and it's not just the things that are obviously 
obviously sexual violence to all of us, uh, but they include things like a teenager persuading a friend to watch a pornographic video on their phone when they didn't want to see it, or someone being persuaded to undress or pose in a sexually aggressive, suggestive way for photographs as a child, a young woman being made to touch another person's genitals without her consent, or a man being threatened to have sex. Uh, Another important part of the survey is that the CSO says itself that it may not be accurate, that the true level of prevalence may in fact be much higher because they're cooperating on the respondents to the survey to disclose what happened to them if something did happen to them. That's right. That's right. And the other thing I think about doing this survey is it will, uh, it will give people courage hopefully, to disclose into the future. And I see this is something that Minister Harris, as Minister for Justice, picked up on yesterday as well, that there are people who never disclosed uh, and who feel they can't disclose or say that it happened. Not necessarily report to the Gardaí, but people who won't disclose even to things like our confidential helpline that, that you speak of so regularly as well. So so the, that, that thought that people have held the hurt and the harm within themselves for fear of disrupting maybe a family, for fear of, for feeling ashamed, uh, for feeling that in some way they were to blame for their own sexual assault. All of these things remain, I think, problematic uh, in our society. And it is interesting, we do get people sometimes after years and after decades, uh, something happens in their own lives or they see something happen in someone else's life and they will come on and they just just want to be able to say it. They want to be able to to start that process of healing for themselves when they contact the helpline or when they contact a rape crisis centre or someone like that just to literally name it uh, can, can be a help. Or and somebody, there is yeah. undoubtedly more to be done in that area. I mean when you look mm. at say the institutional abuse in schools recently and you see men in their 50s, 60s and 70s yeah. who've held uh, the notion of abuse from everybody. Buried it. Um, mm. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so we, so I think also we, you know, we can do things about that, Michael. All of us. Uh, so we, hopefully, we will, we will be able to use these figures to better direct services sure. yeah. uh, in the rape crisis centres and the rest of it. But I think there is an awful lot of still in our society of people saying, "Don't disrupt anything by talking about this. This was only trivial. Mm. Uh, this doesn't matter. Get on with your life in some way." Ways, or mm. turning a blind eye to harassment, to abuse, uh, to to, uh, to 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 phones, and and what people are seeing on them. So there's mm-hmm. an awful. I think there's a lot that we yeah. can do as a society Absolutely. to make it easier for people to get the help that they need uh, to report, and that in turn mm. will reduce the incident. I'm always conscious of uh, people listening to us, uh, and if somebody is listening to us, and it's important to them, well, then it is. Important important and right. there's quite possibly people listening to you now saying you know that woman has a point I'm just not coping or this has been niggling at me for years or decades uh, it is good to talk and there is uh, the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre's 24 hour national helpline free phone 1-800-77-8888 that's 1-800-77-8888 and there's a a lot of people uh, who've had experiences uh, according uh, to the 
official data now that may want to ex- share those experiences with you and your team, Nolene. We have to yeah. leave it there for the moment, though, and thank you indeed for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Nolene Blackwell, Chief Executive of the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. The North East Football League has handed a €500 Euro fine down to Sporting Belly James Duff FC. Let's hear a little bit more about this. Head of Sport at LMFM, Colm Corrigan, joins us. Colm, uh, this follows a game that had to be abandoned 85 minutes into the match in Marheaven and Moore. Tell us a little bit more about uh, the circumstances that led to this fine. Yes, uh, very good morning, uh, Michael. Yeah, this is a match people may remember. It got uh, widespread publicity exactly two weeks ago. It was Holy Thursday night, an ordinary run-of-the-mill match in the, Nash, in the North East League. Uh, Division 1 game in Moorhaven and Moor in the old weather pitch. It was BFC against Sporting BJD. And uh, towards the end of the game then, and uh, indeed the uh, about an hour or so after the match had finished, it had been uh, abandoned with about five minutes to go. And uh, on social media, um, footage of what exactly happened started to circulate and it was uh, fairly well known by the end of the night uh, what had happened a very serious incident uh, developing uh, an individual attached to the sporting BJD team uh, ran from the touchline and uh, basically launched a kung fu attack uh, a kick on the referee the referee fell to the ground uh, the, the incident was uh, captured uh, by somebody on, on, on with a phone on the sideline and uh, it was circulated the referee stayed on the ground the match was subsequently abandoned so uh, that's really the background to it um, Mm. Uh, since then there's been a lot of talk and uh, you know a lot of uh, you know about I suppose talk about referees and the, the level of abuse that they, the, you know they have to endure during ma- during matches not only in soccer but in other sports as well uh, the referee in question we're understood he's making a good recovery we're not sure whether he'll be back officiating at any stage or whether he will choose to do so uh, but at the moment now uh, the attentions Michael have turned to the disciplinary end of it and as you say we understand the club uh, sporting uh, BJD have received a fine we also believe that they've been deducted points uh, one of their management uh, team members has received a three match uh, suspension arising out of the referee's report into the game and we await to see now what happens the individual in question that uh, that launched that assault that kung fu uh, kick on the referee it's playing for obvi- I'm sure you've seen the video I think most people have seen mm. it at this stage Michael it's uh, you know it's pretty clear cut what exactly happened uh, there can be no justification I think for it and uh, it's now in the ha- hands of the FEI the uh, North East League have handed it over as per rule it's gone to the FEI officials uh, their disciplinary unit uh, in Abbottstown so it's gone to headquarters and we await now to see what happens uh, but you would be, you, you would imagine the individual in question is looking at a fairly lengthy ban arising out of all this Michael At a minimum because there was talk of a guard investigation as well yeah, possibly. Uh, you know, I think that's that's certainly a possibility um, for the down the, the road. Um, but I think first and foremost, it will be you know an, an FEI matter. Um, you know, I, I would imagine they'll be looking to send out a clear message out of this, Michael, and certainly bring and you know bring the law down on 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 hard on on this individual concerned. Uh, you know, there can be no justification as to as to what happened in terms of you know abuse and disciplinary matters in general, uh, uh, Michael. There is a ward a wider uh, discussion going on now not just in soccer but in other sports as well as to you know the level of abuse that referees are coming under and it seems to be you know getting worse if anything it's it's not it's certainly not unique and it's not a, a, new, a new thing but I think the level of, of abuse now uh, that referees are, are coming under uh, is something that really has to seriously be addressed not just by uh, by the soccer authorities but other other sports and other codes as well Michael Right uh, is it acceptable uh, do you think uh, to some people is it expected uh, that people vent their anger 
Well, there's one thing venting your anger. We've all been at matches and sidelines and we've had to bite our tongue, Michael, at some maybe decisions that we that we don't uh, like. But, uh, you know, with, without match officials, there are, there'll be no game, simple, simple as that. And in fairness to a lot of organisations, there are a lot of uh, observers now at matches, you know, uh, uh, rating referees and there's the standard of refereeing. So, you know, from an organisational point of view, they've, they've done their bit in that sense to try and make sure that the referees on duty are of the highest uh, standard. But it doesn't, it doesn't uh, excuse... Uh, you know, some of the, the verbal abuse and the physical abuse indeed that a lot of referees are coming under um, you know and, and we've seen now to, to this level this is as bad I think as I've seen and certainly the footage uh, coming out now social media obviously uh, gives you know people mm. a platform I suppose to, to, to record incidents that happen like this and I think everybody was fairly shocked two weeks ago when, when, when this came out and uh, the, the level of, of, of attack on the referee you know Yeah horrific I, I think is the way I would describe the uh, attack uh, if there is to be anything good for uh, coming out of it hopefully it's the beginning of the end of that type of behaviour uh, and indeed that type of attitude Colm thank you indeed that's Colm Corrigan head of LMFM Sport Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Uh, if you were listening to LMFM's news yesterday, you'd have heard Sinn Féin TD for Mead West, Johnny Girk, explain to the doll the plight that a family have of five have in that they're about to be evicted from their home. Johnny Girk is on the line. A very good morning to you, Johnny, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme. This is a family that had been living in this house for 10 years. Yeah, Michael, um, a family in Trim um, that have been there over 10 years. Um, they've got a notice to quit. They, they're, they're, both parents are working. They're not earning enough um, to get a mortgage and they're earning too much uh, on the, um, for the kind of council list. You know? so, and, and in these areas, Michael, I, I, I'm gone all over the uh, constituency. There is no social or affordable housing for people like that. There is, a, um, no matter how much the government talks, there is nothing available. You know, I'm sick and tired of it. There is nothing available when it comes to affordable housing for people like that. Mm-hmm. And I could give you uh, uh, several cases, um, Michael. I'll, I'll just give you a couple mm-hmm. of other ones. Like, mm-hmm. here, here's a woman in Navan. Uh, she has two children, a boy aged seven and a girl aged five. She was living in Navan until she became homeless and is working in Navan. Both children in school in Navan. She was, she was accepted for emergency uh, homeless accommodation but as none available in Mead, she was sent to Green Hills in Drogheda. She has no transport of her own and now she is in danger of losing her job and also the children cannot attend their school. Now, Mead County Council have come back to us saying when, 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 um, when accommodation becomes available in Flower Hill and Navan, they would be in touch with her. Here's another case here. Um, a man uh, and his partner and one child originally living in Navan, but following a notice to quit, was declared homeless, now living in emergency accommodation in North Road in Drogheda. They're on the Mead County Council housing list since February 2019, and, and this man also has a serious uh, heart condition. He's informed by Mead County Council, no emergency accommodation available in Mead, uh, and, and the response we got that he's on the housing list in 2019. Mead County Council are currently dealing with 2014 applicants. I wrote to um, Mead County Council uh, because of the growing number of um, people who've been sent to Drogheda for Mead for emergency accommodation, um, and we asked for the availability of the type of accommodation in Mead, and we received the following response. Mead County Council currently has no additional capacity for homeless accommodation. However, we are continuing to identify potential exits to create capacity within existing providers, and have recently advertised for expressions of interest. So there's no room at the end. Uh, If you present uh, as homeless, uh, there is nowhere in County Mead for you to stay? No. 
there is there is nowhere at the moment, and and there is at the moment there's there's two hundred uh, almost two hundred and fifty notices to quit being handed out. Now I don't know how many people is in each of those uh, houses that mm. notice to quit, but you can be sure it's a lot more than the two hundred and fifty because there's more than one people in some of those um, um, houses. You know, so mm. that's coming down the line. Like if they don't put the, um, the you know you have to the political will has to be there. That's why we called um, for the eviction plan to be. It, kept in place for another 10 months it would give them a chance to um, to, to, to put something in place for people like this and, and you can see there like it's not a problem uh, money it's a political will I, I listened to um, to um, uh, Father Sean Healy on your programme earlier mm. like you know and, and even he said like it's it's not money it's a political will and the political will is not there it, this well, needs to be treat, treated like Well when money is allocated it's not spent uh, I think that was one of the points this billion euro over the three years that went unspent it was intended to be spent on housing but it, it remains in the exchequer Yeah and I could go on and on and on. Um, I had a woman on to me uh, yesterday, uh, Michael, she has a disabled daughter in her 30s. Now in fairness this is not me, can't cancel, West me, can't cancel the, the, the money for disabled bathrooms hasn't been released Michael and we're into almost into the uh, the end of April uh, and this woman a 30 year old disabled daughter, she has to lift her in and out of the bath. You, you, you bring tears to your eyes listening to her you know uh, and she said my disabled daughter is as important as anybody on the housing list and and I just said to her, I, I agree with you, you know, but the Mead can, or Westmead County Council, it's not their fault. They're waiting to get the go-ahead from the department how much they're getting and to release these funds, you know. So it's across the board. Yeah, and we've heard many stories, not just this morning, uh, but I heard a, a number of your colleagues across the week raise issues. Uh, there was uh, Mark Ward talking in, in the doll yesterday uh, about a family, uh, like the family in Trim, uh, they don't qualify for social housing. Uh, the husband in that case is an engineer uh, and I think they have three kids uh, as well. But one of those kids is disabled. Uh, they're going to be a victim. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. And they've nowhere to go. No, it's 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 across the uh, state, um, Michael. We we seen there um, in the last couple of days, like uh, we collated figures across, and nearly every local authority in the state has no uh, emergency accommodation available. 
So that's that's uh, you have nothing in place for these people that are going to be evicted. I take it if you're filling up emergency accommodation in Drogheda with people from County Meath, because there is nowhere to go in County Meath, that it's soon going to fill up in Drogheda as well. Well, you would imagine so. Like, you know, Drogheda, I'm sure, has only a certain amount of accommodation uh, uh, too, you know, and and, and uh, you can see there the situation, Mead can't cancel or advertise in the local papers for accommodation uh, for, for people, you know. So, but fighting the wait until these things is in place, uh, you know, if if you had that um, emergency accommodation in place or something before you go lifting the ban where you're going to throw people out and nowhere for them to go. Mm. Tell me this, uh, what happened in Trim with uh, this family? They'd been renting for 10 years. Uh, I take it they weren't expecting to be evicted, were they? No, well, I, they probably didn't. Uh, I'm not 100% sure, Michael, if there's a family member moving into the house or if they're selling the house. But, um, no, they, they, like, I mean, they were there. They paid their rent. Um, everything everything was grand. Like, and, you know, they have children going to the local school. They have children playing in the local GA clubs, you know. Uh, and they, they cannot see any light at the end of the tunnel uh, when, when they came into my office there last week. Uh, so, um, And they're, they're looking for a house, obviously, to rent. They're looking for a house to rent, but where they were, they were probably weren't, um, mightn't be paying the full um, what they're going to have to pay now. So mm. they, even in the area they're in now, they won't be able to afford um, that, even if they can find a place. You know, So what it means is that best is moving um, miles away from where they are to find something uh, for less money, you know? Right. Uh, you uh, do well to find somewhere for less money, I, I take it, uh, than in Trim, um, relatively speaking, in the county. I mean, if you're going to go to Navan or Ashburn, I take it you probably would expect to pay more, would you? Well, you would, and you see, that's the problem. Like, you know, there there is nowhere for them to find, and and there is, and that's why they they even themselves they think that they will end up in emergency accommodation because that's the situation they're in. You know, and 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 these both both of these parents are working. Like, it's not like they're um, you know, they're 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 out there every day working, mm. making a living. They're just not making enough to get a mortgage, and and they're making too much. But they should be entitled to um, affordable housing, but it's not there. Right. Well, there obviously isn't a problem if they were able to pay their rent for ten years. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been able to stay there for 10 years. Yeah, but I, like, I'm not sure now how much they were paying, you know, but um, they might have been there that could have been uh, good tenants where people, you know, mm. um, will, will are happy enough uh, with you living there if you're a good tenant and they don't normally jump up the rent too much, you know, so uh, maybe that's the situation they mm. were in. But if they go looking now, they could be paying, well, they, they know they'll be paying. They've told me that they're going to be paying an awful lot more than where they, where they are now and they won't be able to afford it, you know. Okay. Uh, and if they have to go into emergency accommodation, um what happens then? Do they go on the housing list? Well, see, if you're earning um, over the um, the threshold uh, for the housing list, you can go in, you can go into emergency accommodation, but you won't go on the housing list if you're if you're earning over the um, the, the threshold. So, know, what so does that mean? Uh, forgive my ignorance, but does that mean that you could be in emergency accommodation, living in a, a hotel or a B and B or a hostel or whatever it is, indefinitely? Well, the only hope for people like that is affordable housing. Michael, you know, or to give up their job, I suppose. <laughs> to, yeah, so, well, they don't they don't qualify for social housing. So either yeah. the, there's affordable housing, um, which, uh, I, I, from the sounds of things, doesn't really sound like a, a plausible option for this no. family, um, or, or, or or social housing. If they don't qualify for social housing, uh, there is nothing. No, well, as you said it yourself there, uh, maybe one of the parents give up their job and, and, and then they would qualify for social housing. So that doesn't make the situation right either, you know. But that that, that could be the reality. Right. It's a, it's a right uh, dilemma for people to find themselves in. It's a mess, yeah. um, Michael. It's a mess. 
Are they, uh, how are they? I mean, from speaking to them, um, they must be distraught. Yeah, everybody. Um, you know, the, like uh, I've seen, um, you know, the, the three words that is just um, making people tremble at the minute is notice to quit. You know, and everybody in a rented accommodation is afraid of um, them three words uh, at, at the minute, you know. And um, so they, they are very distraught. Like, and, you know, the kids, uh, you know, like if they have to take the kids out of school, you have to take the kids out of the GA clubs. And um, that's, that's um, you know, an, an awful lot of pressure on family and, mm. and the kids. Oh, it's hugely disruptive. Any sort of a change like that on children is hugely disruptive. It is, yeah. And, mm. um, you know, it, it, it's not fair either, um, um, Michael, when the country is awash with money, like, you know, um, and, and the political will is what's needed there to um, make make um, um, social and affordable housing available. I know, right, we can't say it's going to happen uh, tomorrow, but mm. this government has 12 years ahead, like, you know, and, and it's worse and worse, the figures it's getting every week. Yeah, it's raining money, isn't it? I mean, this 26 billion euro unexpected windfall that the government is going to enjoy over the next couple of years. Uh, yeah. I, I would make you wonder, though, uh, if uh, we're going to be talking about this in a, a couple of years, uh, given that one billion euro that went unspent. Yeah, well, you see, it, it it goes back to the political will. I I I told you I mentioned that other case there in 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 Westmead there earlier. Like that woman is waiting uh, on funds to relief for a, a disabled bathroom for her daughter who was mm. 30 years of age. She has to lift her in and out of the path. Mm. Now they can't even release the funds almost in the middle of April for a, a situation like that. Where is the political will? Mm. Yeah. Okay, Johnny, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme uh, today. That's uh, Sinn Féin TD for Mead West, Johnny Gurk. Let me bring you some of uh, the comments coming to us. Just a, a few comments have come to us uh, so far today. Uh, somebody asking, why will the government not offer a financial incentive to people to offer a room? to homeless people. It was given for Ukrainians, so why not for everybody? It's a shameful situation. Uh, thank you indeed uh, for your WhatsApp message. Uh, some text messages. Betty Daly says the player from BJD was a bad thug for assaulting the referee and should never be allowed to play for any club in the future. That, that would certainly give people some food for thought, Betty, and maybe that sort of hard clampdown uh, zero tolerance, whatever words you want to put on it, uh, might uh, bring about a, an end to that type of behaviour, uh, which does seem to be acceptable. It's not acceptable on our streets. I don't know why it's acceptable on our sporting fields. Eamon of No Party says, Michael, the price of fuel has dropped back to the same price it was over 18 months ago. A break for people, but not for long. More tax and carbon tax going on again soon. This country is beyond a joke at this stage. The worst government in my lifetime. Tax, tax, tax and more tax is all that they seem to know Irish people are too soft, says Eamon. Thanks uh, for getting in touch with us today. If you'd like to make comment on the programme, we would love to hear from you. Our lines are open and you're welcome to get in touch. You can ring us and talk to us on 0419832000 or text or WhatsApp 0861800658 or email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, the Oireachtas uh, Committee on Justice uh, met uh, this week with uh, a number of uh, groups uh, to talk uh, about uh, the bill 
bill which will introduce an agency on domestic sexual and gender-based violence. The National Women's Council was one of uh, the groups before the committee and we can speak to the Violence Against Women Coordinator with the National Women's Council of Ireland, Ivana Utak. Uh, very good morning to Ivana and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, this agency obviously will be very welcomed by the National Women's Council and indeed other organisations uh, but there's a number of things you'd like uh, to be considered in terms of finalising the legislation. Good morning, Michael. Uh, yes, yes, we do. Um, we are actually welcoming this agency. It, it's very needed that oversees and implements the, the national strategy on domestic sexual and gender-based violence that was launched last year. But as you said, there's a couple of things that we're calling the government to amend on the, on the bill because they are crucial, especially not to repeat errors from the past. So we are calling specifically in relation to um, the participation and engagement of civil society organisations, both on the functions of the agency as well as the board of the agency. And we also want the agency to be able to fulfil their obligations. And if if you look at all the functions and you look at the international strategy um, on domestic and gender-based violence, it definitely needs to engage with so many departments that it needs to have the powers to actually fulfil those obligations. So those are two key points that, that we're calling the government to, to change on the, on the bill. And I suppose there's also a question about what obligations do we have in this country. There's already a lot of existing obligations that are, are not being met under the Istanbul Convention, for example. Absolutely, yeah, and, and, and this strategy actually aligns very well and as you say, it definitely needs to fulfil those obligations and the agency is meant to be part of implementing this strategy that is in line with the Istanbul Convention, so that's absolutely key uh, because Ireland ratified and it is our commitment internationally to fulfil those obligations. Yeah, we were talking uh, quite a, a lot this morning, Ivana, about what the government will do with this windfall tax, this €26 billion Euro over the next two years. I, I take it if uh, you had any say in it, uh, you'd uh, see a a number of women's refuges uh, established. Yes, we we are calling, that's one of the main calls and it is part of the strategy but it is not is not fulfilling all the Istanbul Convention obligations in relation to have the exact number uh, that we need in Ireland in order to tackle violence against women. So we're definitely calling not only for more uh, refugees, it's also about being more accessible and also especially for disabled women and for travel women. So there's a number of calls in relation to refugees in in this country. Yes. Okay. As things stand, um, civil organisations such as uh, the Women's Council will only have a consultative role uh, in the work of this agency. Absolutely, and, and we believe that it's a very traditional way to look at uh, the NGO sector. At the Oireachtas Committee, at the Justice Committee, it was acknowledged that the role that the NGO and the CSO sector has um, over the years in terms of implementing campaigns as well as running refugees and so on. So that was acknowledged. However, on the bill, as it reads right now, it's only a consultative status and 
during the SAR national strategy was very clear how important it is and how seriously they took the input from NGOs and, and civil society organisations. So we're actually calling the government to continue in this approach that is not just a consultative status, but we're actually way more involved in terms of co-designing and implementing and planning uh, with this agency. So hopefully they will take all of this on board because it seems to be, it was a positive atmosphere about this, but we really need it uh, on the legislation. Okay, and uh, how you plan for it? Uh, one uh, good tool is data that is collected, but if it can be used is a question. Um, yes, if, if, if there's something, we, we saw yesterday the Central, the Central Statistics Office releasing uh, data about sexual violence that we haven't had updated for 20 years. And if there's something that's very, very clear when we look at this data is how appalling it is, how many women are being affected. And hopefully this, this not only informs legislation, it, it allows us to have more specific legislation and to be more aware of what are the problems and the nature of violence that Ireland is experiencing. So especially women are experiencing. So mm. as, as you said, data is absolutely crucial to, to tackle this issue. And it is especially women, of course, isn't it? Uh, whether it's uh, domestic violence or sexual violence. And sometimes uh, the line between the two is blurred. Um, yeah, no, and, and there is really no, it's impossible to draw that line, but it is very, very clear that we saw yesterday one in two women will experience sexual violence during their lifetime in Ireland. That's it. Half of the women will experience sexual violence. And it, 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 it's hard to really land what that means, especially the level of trauma that half of the women will experience it. So, and we also saw from the data that four out of five women who experience violence is from someone they actually know, they actually knew. And so the perpetrator is usually a friend, a colleague, a partner or an ex-partner. So when we look at this data, it really allows us to see where the violence really is and what do we need to do. That is not, a lot of times we hear that it's stranger to mm. the, it's a stranger to the person who perpetrates violence. So when we see that it's actually someone who the person trusted, then it's a completely different approach uh, as to what to do in relation to this. Okay, uh, and when we talk uh, about women, uh, we're talking about a fairly broad section of society. We're talking about rich women, poor women. Uh, we're talking about travellers. We're talking about Roma. Uh, we're talking about migrant women, disabled women. This is one of the points that you were making to the committee. Absolutely, yes. It, obviously, violence is not experienced the same ways. And also, the services to, to women, for example, migrant women obviously will in, in most cases, need uh, extra um, language skills that and cultural skills that both the guards and the courts need to have. So obviously we don't all experience violence and the services we need on the same level and the type of services that we need are different. So this needs to be taken into account as well, absolutely. And we are calling to have further qualitative data. So we need ex- we know exactly these victims who are migrant, disabled, uh, travel and Roma women, how do they experience this violence and what mm. do they need in order to tackle this issue but also protect them. Okay. Uh, I think though that uh, you'd agree, Ivana, that this agency is at least a step in the right direction in terms of tackling some of these terrible tra- problems. Absolutely, it is, and it's something that we have been calling for a long time to have one structure under the Department of Justice. So we are happy that this is uh, moving forward, 
However, we, we, we really wish that the government will, will take all of the, the committee will take all of what we discussed uh, on Tuesday into account. Ivana, thank you indeed uh, for talking to us uh, this morning. Nice to speak to you. Ivana Utak, Violence Against Women Coordinator with uh, the National Women's Council of Ireland. Now, we were talking yesterday on the programme. If you were listening, you might remember about library books, um, which are aimed at uh, the 12 to the 17 age group uh, and indeed the LGBTQ plus community and those who are trying to get a, an understanding of the LGBT plus community. Uh, and we heard that there's some objections. Indeed, uh, some of those objections have gone a step further than just objections with people turning up at, at libraries, trying to forcibly remove or destroy books and indeed intimidate staff uh, and children. It's an issue that was raised in the Dáil yesterday. Mr. in recent mo- weeks and months, we've seen an increasing number of uh, events outside libraries and unfortunately inside libraries involving intimidatory behaviour towards library staff, the general public, in an attempt to remove, uh, deface uh, or uh, outright remove uh, without permission certain library books uh, for children. Um, Minister, I'm sure you would agree with me that a library is a place of learning, of information, of study and is certainly no place uh, for extreme politics of any kind. Uh, Minister, what assurances can uh, you give me uh, that government uh, can provide certainty with regard to library staff, the general public, um, and of course children, most importantly, who might be in these libraries uh, when such instances have occurred, such as occurred in my own constituency in Swords just a couple of weeks ago, um, that uh, those individuals will be uh, kept outside of these premises because if they're, um, you know, flagged events that these that these individuals Thank are putting you, online, uh, Minister, well in advance, that I believe they should be uh, removed from libraries forcibly if required and may ensure that uh, the safety and welfare of library users and staff are not, as, is not put in, in jeopardy. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I just want to give a very clear message here. I mean, the... If someone has a, a political issue that they want raised in terms of the availability of certain books and content within books, there are ways in which they can raise that without intimidating children and staff who are simply doing their job, uh, normally linked to a local authority, uh, running library services, which are fantastic, by the way, across the country. Um, my own children um, use, uh, use the library services a lot. Um, and it's no place for protest and intimidation. Um, so, um, you know, I, I will raise this with the, with the Minister for Local Government, um, and if there are um, security considerations, then of course we'll pursue them. Um, but I hope we can give a very clear signal, you know, across all political parties, um, that, um, you know, intimidation that may involve children uh, is, is really not an appropriate way to raise a political Thank you, point. Minister. That's Minister Simon Coveney. He was responding uh, to the concerns of Fine Gael TD Alan Farrell in the Dáil yesterday. Michael Reed on The Labour Party is calling on the government to cap prices on what it says are everyday essential items. That's items like bread, milk, eggs and pasta. Let's hear a little bit more about this. Uh, Labour spokesperson on finance, Jed Nash, is a TD for Louth and Mead East. He's with us here in the studio and a very good morning to you. Thank you indeed uh, for coming into to us today. <laughs> Obviously the cost of living has gone through the roof and people are finding it 
hard to cope. Uh, but you're asking government to cap prices on some of these uh, Yeah, or, or, or at least consider it. Um, there is legislation available to government um, to uh, consider under exceptional circumstances uh, after certain thresholds are met, um, under supply issues, for example, uh, and pricing issues, uh, where there are abnormal practices, as says the legislation, they can introduce price caps for a period of six months and extend that by another period of six months. And I think we are in exceptional circumstances. This isn't the first time that I've actually called for um, this measure. Um, I called for last year uh, when we saw um, you know, the very serious um, issues arising in terms of the high cost of living and that being passed on mm. to consumers. And I kind of understood the argument from government at the time, but I don't understand it and accept it now that an intervention can't be made. And I'll tell you why. In a free market. In, in, a, in a free market. Mm. A free but regulated market. Mm-hmm. This is the important mm-hmm. thing. Um, there is legislation, going back to 2007, that empowers government to do this in exceptional circumstances. And the reason why I think there's a compelling case for it now uh, is because some of the price rises that we've seen over the last few weeks and few months are absolutely inexplicable. It is hard to understand them. And supermarkets themselves and major suppliers can't actually justify them. And I'll tell you why. Input costs are going down. In other words, energy costs are going down. We know that. We see that at the fuel pumps. We see that less so in our electricity bills because of the way the electricity companies uh, operate. Uh, we see that in every aspect of kind of consumer society. Uh, input costs, are got, you know, labour costs aren't as high as they were. Um, wage increases have been quite moderate. And we've been warned over the last year or so, Michael, to watch spiralling wage costs that this could actually impact on mm-hmm. you know, further inflation. Yeah. That hasn't been the case. Yeah. European Central Bank came out. They nailed it a couple of weeks ago. The, gov- the um, former governor of the Irish Central Bank, who's the chief economist of the European Central Bank, said one of the major problems with inflation now is profiteering. Yeah. So in other words, um, companies aren't passing on the lower input costs to consumers. What they're doing is pocketing the difference. So yeah. But this would make profits. very little difference to the consumer, wouldn't it? I mean, uh, what the problem seems to be is uh, affording some of the more expensive items. Uh, people can't afford meat. You hear that uh, there's meat for the children, none for the mammy. Uh, but uh, if you cap the cost of a loaf of bread, that's not going to put meat on the table, is it? No, it isn't. But... Um the, the point I'm making is that, and I, I, I rarely make the argument in a, in a market economy that we should be capping prices because it actually sometimes can have a detrimental impact on, on supply, uh, and that's that's another issue. Um, but um, the situation we have at the moment is quite exceptional. Large companies are getting away with absolute bloom order, um, profiteering off the backs of stress householders. It's not either as if farmers, for example, primary producers, are benefiting from it. They're not being paid especially handsomely for the produce that they produce. But we have seen 16.4% food inflation in this country over the last year. But the reality is that the basic price of staples like bread, milk, butter, cheese has gone up exponentially, much higher than the 16.4%. When all the costs that go into producing these products Mm -hmm. uh, have actually come down or have at least stabilised. If you look at the profits, Michael, uh, and the revenues of some of the key operators in the sector, the Kerry Group revenue up 18%, Glanbia revenue up 21%. Tesco in the UK, the problem is Tesco in Ireland doesn't separate out its profits uh, its margin, and its margins. Mm. Tesco in the UK has doubled its profits over the last uh, year, up 
2.7 billion euros. Well, actually, you go into your local supermarket now and you'll see, in fact, the price, even of own good brands, uh, own brand goods mm. have gone up. Uh, people have been contacting me over the last few days to tell me, for example, you know, a, 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 a retailer, international retailer based uh, that, that operates in Ireland, I won't name it, um, uh, that trades on this idea that they're low cost. I mean, their own brand butter has gone up. Uh, it was 89 cent. Uh, a few weeks ago, it's now uh, just under one fifty. Uh, the price of milk, you know, the two litres of milk that we buy in our mm. own household, mm. gone up 50 cent over the last few weeks. Mm. Absolutely unjustifiable. But what's happening here is companies are profiting off the backs uh, of, 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 of consumers. And what, at the very least, what we want to see happen is the Competition and Consumer Protection Commission to investigate what's going on mm. in the market. They uh, say they don't have a role in that, though. They, they argue that they have, but my view is that if they're actually a watchdog that will bark, uh, they need to take on that responsibility and do what, for example, is happening in the UK at the mm. moment, where their counterpart organisation is at least carrying out an investigation as to how the market is operating. Okay. But are you suggesting there's the, wrongdoing here? I mean, uh, most companies are in the business of making profit. W- without the evidence, we can't, um, we, we can't definitively mm. say that. Uh, there is... Um, a phenomenon that's known as tacit collusion. Now, I'm not talking here about price signalling, price fixing, mm. or anything like that, but uh, there is this phenomenon of tacit collusion that economists and others talk about that appears to be happening in European markets um, where, you know, you go into one supermarket, oh my, why were the price here is very similar to one in the next. And, and that happens. I think that's probably a natural mm. enough phenomenon. I'm not saying anything um, explicit is, is happening here because we don't have the evidence. Well, what I'm saying the, is this, I thought the opposite. What, what, I thought there's all this match pricing or we'll give you money back and all of that kind of thing. Well, well actually, yeah. some of the money yeah. back uh, deals are interesting because some people have reported to me and I've seen some evidence of this. You know, some of the retailers that might organise voucher schemes and so on. Um, you know, a packet of meat that might have cost four ninety nine a, a couple of months ago is now costing you seven euro fifty. So they're getting you in the door, and in fact, you're no better off when you're leaving. In fact, uh, you may be worse off than you were a couple of months ago. And the point here I'm making is that the cost that go into producing the food is actually going down, mm. but profits in the supermarkets are going up, mm. uh, and we don't have a watchdog that necessarily barks. We've seen that with the mm. For example, the communications regulator in relation to high telecoms charges, yeah. uh, the odds seem to be stacked against the consumer. Yeah. We've seen that in relation to energy costs and the. Uh, but there's nothing uh, re- wrong re- with charging. Reg- but there's nothing regulator. wrong with charging more. Is it? There's nothing wrong with putting prices up. Uh, we we don't like it, obviously, as consumers. Uh, but from the supermarkets' point of view. Uh, that's their business. Nobody's uh, a difficulty with, 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 with organisations making profit. Mm. Um, that's that's important. Businesses uh, and they have to, to compete. That. And competition they, is supposed to be do. the solution to all of this. Y- so that if Tesco's are, are putting up prices and Aldi bring them down, people go and shop in Aldi. That is supposed to be the solution or vice versa, it has to be said. But in this case, it seems that no matter where, wherever consumers turn, they are nailed by high prices at the till all of the time, regardless mm. of whether you go to Aldi, Lidl, Tesco, Super Value on stores, whatever the case might be. And is it that we have and the blinkers on, do you think? I, I because, think so. Because we've I, been paying more for petrol, we've been paying more for well, just the price of everything has only the, been the, going in one direction. And, yeah. and, and under the guise of the cost of living yeah. crisis, um, everybody, I think, just kind of accepts it. And it's about time that people stopped accepting this. I noticed today in, in response to queries uh, made by the Irish Mirror, in response to the, this uh, campaign, if I can call it, that I'm running, uh, the Competition Consumer Protection Commission said they've only received 32 formal complaints over the last period of time about high food prices. Mm. But that never really reflects the reality of what's going on in society. We know that while people might grumble, uh, they're more likely to come to their TD uh, and complain rather than actually 
go through the hassle, as they might say it, of going to a watchdog is it who they have very little confidence in. To make a formal complaint, mm. it can be, and mm. to have that uh, formally uh, invest, investigated. So we've limited powers with our consumer watchdog here. They're more about competition than actually protecting the interests of consumers. Mm. And the laws that they actually do have, they are very reluctant to use. And this is the point. Why did they legislate in 2007 to give the Consumer Protection Authority the uh, function of actually investigating the market, doing these kinds of things that I want them to do, uh, well, actually, they're not prepared to do it. And I think it's time that we did have watchdogs in this country that actually barked and represented the interests of consumers and not just the interests of uh, the operators in the sector yeah. when they look at competition. They haven't even looked at uh, how the market seems to be stacked against people. Uh, they need to do that. They're doing that in the UK. They're at least investigating what's happening mm. under the bonnet of all of this to try and figure out what it is. And I'm, I'm absolutely convinced that what they're doing here is trying to get away with putting up prices as uh, as quickly as they can the and by as big a margin the as the they possibly can is, yeah, uh, and they'll get away with it as long as they can uh, until somebody says stop and mm. I think there is now and the only person who can say the only person who can say stop is the Minister for Enterprise is it? That's right that's right and uh, at the very least I think an examination of these issues could should be should be commissioned so we can actually have the robust data mm. uh, it's all well and good me saying that there's an issue anecdotally we believe mm. that there is uh, there's an issue in, in the UK there's an issue across okay. Europe if the Minister We're was not immune to that if the Minister was to take your advice on board and cap the prices uh, could it result in milk butter, eggs being sold at a loss? Uh, no, uh, it doesn't, and the, the legislation doesn't anticipate that because that would be uh, not the purpose of, of that legislation that was introduced in 2007. There would be an agreed price uh, across uh, the economy. What's happening in Greece is interesting. Uh, rather than actually reach for the law, uh, the supermarket chains, the main uh, multiples over there, uh, agreed uh, with government to sit down around the table late last year and agreed in November 2022 to introduce uh, a ceiling of prices for 51 staple products. Mm. So in Greece, that would, I guess, involve bread, milk, olive oil mm. and so on, cooking oil and so on. Um, and they've done that and it's worked quite successfully. But if you take any of those things, olive oil, olive oil is probably a very good example. Uh, very hard to cap the price on, on olive oil. You get olive oil very, very cheap and then you can spend an awful lot on it. It can be very, very expensive. Uh, there's a, a difference in the quality, obviously. Yeah, this, this, is, this is in their own brands, Michael. This is what they did. So the grand, brands that they would have control uh, over. I think it's worth something that's worth um, considering. What's also worth considering as well, and the Irish Congress of Trade Unions have been very clear about it, and the Nevin Institute, their think tank that's associated with them, said the answer here is actually windfall taxes on profit here in companies. Um, that's something that's been considered in other countries. Um, you know, we have a free market, but we've also got a market that's regulated, mm. and it shouldn't be, um, it shouldn't uh, always be uh, fixed. I won't say fixed, I use that term advisedly, but it shouldn't always come down in favour of the big companies uh, as against the consumer. And that's how people feel, and that's why people don't make complaints, because mm. they very little confidence in the ability of uh, watchdogs in this country to actually take on big companies and their vested interests mm. and we don't have a government that's prepared to do that mm. either um, I mean I know myself you go to the till I mean I remember going to one of our low cost so called low cost mm. retailers a few weeks ago stuff that we'd usually buy for about maybe 55, 60 mm. euro in terms of shopping basket 80 euros mm. um, and but you don't that. do that I mean the shrewd shopper doesn't do that they don't go to the same shop what you do is you go to one shop for your potatoes you, you go to another shop for problem, your meat the problem is if you shop around mm. now as well you're finding the same problem mm. you're finding the same problem 
Uh, and now there is huge competition, more competition than there ever was, mm-hmm. but the prices are high, and uh, it, at the very least, it needs to be investigated. So we have the data uh, that could inform you know for future decisions. Yeah, this is the moment, and we know that you know inflation is impacting on different households differently. Some are doing okay. Some have savings; they're insulated. Others aren't. People in social welfare, people on minimum wage, people on, on low incomes, are maybe paying high rents, high mortgages, mm-hmm. but high mortgage interest rates—they're really, really funny, very difficult. And every and penny last, counts. Yeah. Every penny mm-hmm. counts yeah. at the yeah. moment. So yeah. this needs to be further considered. All right, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed for coming in to us uh, this morning. Labour's uh, spokesperson on finance, Jed Nash, who's uh, a TD for Louth and Mead East. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Now, thanks to Margaret, who's uh, been WhatsApping us uh, this morning, saying, Michael, Nolan Blackwell has such an insight into sexual abuse. This is Nolan Blackwell of uh, the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre, when she explains that one usually knows the perpetrator of such a, I beg your pardon, such a terrible crime, forgive me, Margaret, uh, that one never forgets when someone steals your childhood from you. Um, But, Michael, what happens when the same abuser still lives in your community? Uh, You never get a a chance to put it behind you. Uh, As Nolene explained, it's usually someone that you know. Thank you, Margaret. Um, I take it uh, that uh, that's uh, something uh, that uh, you've experienced of. Thank you indeed uh, for making contact. Uh, another text or WhatsApp from somebody. Uh, this is following on from Johnny Gork talking about the family in Trim who are facing eviction. A member of my family is in the same position. They've rented a house for 10 years and now the owner has asked them to leave and they're going to sell the house apparently. Uh, they can't put their names on the social housing list because they don't have children uh, they've only two dogs. They can't afford to rent another house because the rent has tripled in Athboy. They can't live outside of the town because they don't drive. They're both working, so they're not entitled to HAP. What are they supposed to do? Now, as you say, they'd be better off on the dole or at least they'd be entitled to HAP. Uh, the government uh, is a disgrace. Athboy is full of derelict properties, which the council were supposed to take over and refurbish to rent out. Thanks indeed uh, for that. Uh, I'm not sure that they wouldn't be entitled to HAP because they're working. Um, Maybe that's something uh, that they could look into. But uh, thank you indeed uh, for your text to the programme. Jed Nash with us there a moment ago talking about capping the price of certain staple products, some uh, basic products in supermarkets. The best I've heard from Jed Nash in years, says somebody. Let's hope something comes of it. James Andrade says, toilet roll... Uh, in Lidl, I think, on the 20th of January was two eighty nine a pack. On special this week, nine ninety nine. And don't start me on the price of a Chinese takeaway. OK, James, we won't even mention it. But thanks, uh, I understand. Uh, Harry, thank you for your text. He says, Michael, there's something uh, very wrong. Just take potatoes, leaving farms at €300 Euro a tonne on shelves of supermarkets for €1,300. Euro. Farmers do all the work. Who is gone uh, with the €1,000? Where does that end up? People need to, to get back buying from the farmers. Thank you indeed uh, for that. Harry, Mary and Trim. 
about uh, the cost of oil, saying we must be the laughing stock of the world. A year ago, oil went up. Every single thing we buy went through the roof. As a result, now oil is dropping in price and nothing is coming down. Where is the regulator and why is nobody doing anything about it, uh, says Mary. Thank you uh, indeed uh, for that, Mary, and thanks to everybody who's been in touch with us. Now, now uh, speaking of uh, government, politics, parliament uh, and so on, uh, we had a lot of talk on the programme today and indeed yesterday about housing and the problems that people are facing, uh, so many people facing eviction now, it seems, with nowhere to go, uh, as we've been hearing. And if you were listening yesterday, you'd have heard Keane O'Callaghan of the Social Democrats tell us uh, that his party was tabling a a motion which would increase the rate of property tax quite substantially from 0.3% to 10% of the value of the property a a year. Now there was some support for that proposal but not everybody agreed. In the county that I represent, County Kerry, we have 172 voids which is empty houses why don't they go tackling those houses and putting those into use? When a house, a local authority house, becomes avail- available, within a matter of uh, the most, a month, five or six weeks, that house should be turned around and there should be new people put into it. But for TDs inside this doll to go attacking property owners, I've heard more rubbish from over here today from people who are serial objectors themselves. They've objected to thousands of houses being built in their constituencies. We've one lady inside in this chamber that has objected to 5,000 houses in the very short length of time she's been a TD. It's insanity of the worst type. And why? Oh, because they are being built by the private sector. And maybe somebody will make a profit. My good God, is there anything in the world wrong with a person making a profit? Is there anything in the world wrong in the world with a person having a house? It's their property. They might have worked hard for it. If somebody inherits a house, are you seriously telling me that you want to increase a tax by 33 times to 10% of the valuation of the property? This would mean, if implemented, that an average vacant home, using the average home price example of 320000 would end up paying a vacant home tax of 32000 a year if you got your way. That is insanity so of the worst in this absolute area, type. And I'm not going to be shouted down by anybody. You have to declare his interest yes. in this area, oh, Chair. Thank you. Stop the well, clock, stop please. the clock. Stop the clock, please. Deputy, I take your point of order. You didn't declare an interest. If you would declare your interest, continue. Yes. For the time remaining. Thank you. Excuse me. Declare That's my interest. Deputy, I continuously, I'm addressing the chair. Perfect. I continuously, as you well know, well, you're around here a while. I always declare my interest I in every debate. I provide a lot of a comment. I. Will you please stop the clock? No, too late. I give you your opportunity. Right. Well, no, no, but I'm going to say is in, a, in, no, in answer to, no, but in answer to this, I provide a combination and there's nothing to be ashamed of in that. not saying that. Nothing. This is a CPO in disguise. Another way of a CPO in disguise. They want to tax the people out of their homes. They want to tax... I've given you one warning to resume your seat. Resume your seat, Deputy.
Resume your seat out of respect for the house. Respect for this house. I will. You have the cheek to come in here and your phone ring and you then carry on like this. That's what these people want to do. Deputy, Pass them out of their homes Deputy Collins is about it's to speak. Wrong. Deputy Collins, deputies, please don't encourage deputies. Please. <laughs> Democracy at work. <laughs> Uh, two Healy Rays for the price of one there, by the way, in case you uh, couldn't uh, make out uh, the difference between the two voices. We'd Danny Healy Ray and Michael Healy Ray uh, objecting uh, to the idea of uh, that 10% property tax, uh, which was proposed by the Social Democrats in the Dáil yesterday. That's all we have time for today. Thank God. <laughs> God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning. With thanks to Maggie Maguire for researching and Chris Murray in the control tower. I'm Michael. We'll be back at 9am on LMFM. See you then. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.